Let us pray. Loving God, you teach us that if we are lacking in wisdom, we should turn to you and ask for what we need, because you give to all generously and ungrudgingly. We know that we have so much to learn about your way. Open wide your word to us and give us wisdom to understand the things you want to teach us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's first reading from the prophets is Jeremiah 17, 5 through 10. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness and in uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Today's psalm reading is Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. <clears throat> and today's gospel reading is from Luke 6, 17 through 26. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil, on account of the Son of Man, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven.
for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is the gospel of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our salvation. Three weeks from today, Martha and Tom and I will be packed and getting ready to head out for Rwanda to meet with church leaders to learn about forgiveness. In 1994, Rwanda was the site of what is undoubtedly one of the worst genocides in history. Around a million people were killed in 100 days because of their ethnic identity. So pray for us, because it's going to be intense. We will not come back to you the exact same Carissa, Martha, and Tom that left. One of the things that I both love and hate about these peacemaking study trips is that they confront you head-on with the pain and injustice in the world. We've started our reading and our group reflections in our preparation for the trip, and it is intense already. Um, I was sort of prepared for that this time, having had similar readings and study to do for the Israel-Palestine trip last year. And if you're thinking of joining me for one of those trips next year, get your reading glasses out. These are not, we're going to build a school kind of mission trips, and neither are they um, just group tours to go sightseeing. The book that I am currently reading for the trip is full of interviews with Hutu soldiers talking about the mobs they participated in to kill innocent Tutsi neighbors. Their friends and neighbors, sometimes even family members. The book I read before that is Stories of Forgiveness. It's about Tutsi survivors reaching out and forgiving repentant attackers who had killed their friends and family. It's based on a documentary called As We Forgive, which I highly recommend to all of you to watch as you're praying for the team. This is the sort of stuff that you have to read and watch in little pieces because it's just too much to take in all at once. As far as I can tell in my study so far, the biggest catalyst in all of this was the wealthy, privileged colonizers coming in, taking advantage of and misunderstanding the local people, and then just leaving. It's a similar story in many other parts of the world, too. Maybe not as recent or as consolidated in such a tiny time and place, but it's happened all around the world time and time again. This is very interesting to me on a sociological level because for a long time, mission trips, the idea of a mission trip, was associated solely with humanitarian aid or with spreading the gospel, both very worthy causes for the record. But the world has changed quite a great deal since the days of the missionary heroes I read about and looked up to as a kid. Again, I know, I was a weird kid. Today, there are still many places that need humanitarian aid. 
but there are more effective ways of providing that aid than spending the money to travel halfway around the world to build a house for someone. And most of the places in the world that are the least in need of humanitarian aid are the ones that are the most in need of the gospel message of love and freedom. So what does that mean for mission today? It means that it's pretty darned important for us to go learn from others in different places and bring it back here to spread the gospel in our own time and place where it is becoming less and less a part of our own cultural narrative. And according to Luke, we certainly have a great deal to learn from those who are in the darkest of worldly circumstances. There will never, ever be a shortage of places to explore on these learning trips Because there are always places in the world that are plagued with war and poverty. And not just poverty, but poverty. The 32 hours between meals, less than $2 a day income, no clean water kind of poverty. This is not to poo-poo the poverty and financial inequality that we see in our own part of the world, but rather to put into perspective that this is what Jesus is talking about when he says poor in the context of this passage. This is the sort of poverty that we are confronted with on trips like these. And as difficult as it is, it's very important for us in the Western world to acknowledge that struggle and to meet people in those places and to get to know them because they know God's blessing in ways that we will always struggle to understand. It is important For us to understand that we, sitting here in our beautiful, warm warm church building, in our nice church clothes, having driven here or gotten a ride here in a warm car or bus, or maybe just walked a block or two in a warm coat, we are solidly among those that Jesus is warning in this passage. And woe can be a very hard word to contend with, especially when we know it's aimed at us. We like to gloss over or soften the blow of passages like this in our location in the world. We like the blessed are sections of these passages, and we sweep quickly through the woe to parts. We want to know that when the rug is swept out from under us entirely, God will be there. But we don't want to confront the idea that God does not ask for or even accept the half-heartedness that comes from not having to rely on God as much right now. There is a reason that we tend to use Matthew's version of the Beatitudes far more often than we use Luke's. Matthew is much gentler in his delivery of this. Luke does not sugarcoat anything, and it makes it very uncomfortable for us sitting here very far away from no clean water, famine-level, refugee-type poverty and strife. Matthew and Luke are kind of doing a good cop, bad cop routine here with the Beatitudes, and we'd rather talk to the good cop today. In Matthew's Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who hunger for righteousness, while Luke simply says, Blessed are the poor and hungry. So which is it? It's fun for me sometimes, sometimes, not always, to hear other people recap my sermon Because some people will connect to exactly the point I thought I was making, while others will find one line I didn't even think much about and be totally blown away by it. 
That's how you know that's the Holy Spirit's work and not mine, because things I don't even remember writing or saying will stick with people. Two people can hear the exact same sermon and come away with completely different summaries of it. Try this out later this week. Talk to somebody else from the congregation and ask them what the main point I had to say today was. Um, often, I can even hear in the way that people summarize what I have said in the sermon or what stood out to them. I can hear what it is that God is working on in them because of the way that they heard it. That's what's happening in Matthew and Luke when we see these very different recaps of the Beatitudes. Matthew and Luke don't even agree on if Jesus said them before or after coming down the mountain. In Matthew, Jesus is still up on the mountain preaching. In Luke, they come down onto the plain first. Matthew puts the Beatitudes in the sermon on the mount, while Luke puts them in the sermon on the plain. So, of course, when they are writing their impressions and summaries of the sermon, they are a little different. Two different people listening to the same sermon. Matthew and Luke are two different people who were in two different places in their relationship with Jesus when they heard this, as well as when they wrote it down, which was almost certainly not even remotely immediately after hearing it. But as different as they are, they are both important in gaining a fuller picture of what Jesus was saying here. God is not punishing those who have in this lifetime what they need and don't have to rely on God at the bottom of the barrel. God is not punishing those who are half-hearted because we have the luxury of being so. God is warning us. You can tell a kid not to touch a hot stove, but you're not the one who actually burns them when they do. If you touch the stove, you'll get burned. It's not a parent's way of saying they will hurt the child for touching the stove. It's the parent's way of trying to help the child avoid the pain of touching the stove. God is not punishing those who have. Jesus is saying that God wants you to seek God's kingdom with everything you have. God wants you to come to the banquet table ready to eat. Don't ruin your dinner first. God wants you to know the power of real joy. And those things are simply easier to see when the world has taken away all the obstacles, all the things that distract us. When you have enough in life, it's harder to find the motivation to set it aside to seek God's kingdom because this kingdom is perfectly comfortable. It's harder to understand the meaning of the heavenly feast when you already have enough to eat now. If things are happy for you now, it's harder to understand the power of the party yet to come. God does not bless people because they are poor, but rather it's not until you've lost it all that you can really, really understand the full weight of what Jesus is offering. Jesus' feast is not offered only to those who are hungry now, but they understand the power of that feast even more. The joy of heaven isn't only for those who struggle now, but they're going to have a far easier time understanding that. We are not all able to travel the world with Presbyterian peacemaking. There are physical and circumstantial limitations for sure. But we do all have a call to learn and grow and to seek God in the unlikely places and in the dark corners of the world. Not just sometimes but as a regular spiritual practice, a built-in part of our life. 
While we sometimes like to think of extreme poverty and, and suffering only during times of special offerings, like one great hour of sharing, and we prefer to read Matthew's slightly more spiritualized and easier to swallow version of the Beatitudes, it is in that human connection and allowing ourselves to be exposed to that discomfort that we are able to draw closer to one another and to God. While it is difficult to read books and articles about war and poverty and genocide and suffering, it is um, in understanding the depths of woe on earth that we can begin to understand the heights of compassion given to us in Jesus. Without knowing the depths of suffering that happened in Rwanda in 1994, it is impossible to even begin to understand the ridiculous grace showed in the forgiveness of those who attacked. It's hard to spend time with those who suffer or who have suffered greatly, but it is in knowing their faith and passion that we can begin to see what seeking God with all we have really looks like. Last week, I left you with a challenge in regards to fishing. I said that uh, to the leadership to be willing to fish at what other people think is the wrong time or place, and I asked everyone else to trust the church's leadership uh, the church leadership's fishing strategies. Keep doing that. This next challenge I'm giving you this morning is not a replacement, but an addition. Um, and I gave a similar version of this challenge to the elders on both sessions this week. Go learn about someone new and different from you. Go find some stories of faith in the midst of adversity. Go watch that documentary, As We Forgive. Or read about Corey Tenboom. Pick a place in the world that you don't know much about and read about the people there and what they have been through. Maybe you have Jewish grandparents like I do. Talk to them or the family historian, I have one of those too, about what they went through to survive in Poland in the 1930s and 40s. Perhaps you have a little bug in the back of your mind nagging you about going on one of these peacemaking trips in 2020. Go learn about one of the trips and the people you'd be interacting with on that trip. Think about what Jesus' message of freedom and joy and plenty means in the midst of what you learn. That is what it means to grow closer to God by growing closer to one another, dear ones. This is where those who Luke warns are able to find the blessings of the kingdom, of eating at the banquet, and of joy in the morning. Amen.